This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Paul Newton. Um, I'm from the Cambridge Assessment Network Division. I'm pleased to be able to introduce to you, although he probably needs a little introduction, and to welcome Dennis Sopos. Um, Dennis is no stranger to Cambridge, had it, having studied here a few years ago. <laughs> and, and having met and worked with uh, many of you, no doubt, over the years. Um, Dennis is director of the Standards Group at Ofqual, um, and he's officially Ofqual's corporate memory, having been in many of the predecessor organisations, um, from QCA to SCAR to SEAC and even to SEC for a little while. Uh, and he actually began his teaching career as a science teacher and a chemistry teacher in particular. Um, his presentation today is called Today's Assessment Jungle, A View from the Regulator. Uh, and Dennis is going to be talking particularly about um, the challenge of standards today and how to maintain them. Um, so, Dennis, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, when I agreed uh, a year ago now uh, to, to do this, I thought a nice uh, seminar in Cambridge, 20 people maybe around a table. I hadn't quite uh, envisaged it like this, but still. Um, anyway, th- thanks for uh, coming along. I hope it's going to be... Uh, interesting. Um, let me just start uh, with a, a bit of an advert. What's, uh, what's Ofqual? Um, we're uh, a, an independent body that reports to Parliament. Um, uh, we were pleased to see that uh, on the Cabinet Office list today, we're on the retain list. <laughs> so uh, otherwise I wouldn't have been here probably. Um, and our job is to uh, regulate qualifications, exams, uh, assessments, the things that three to 14-year-olds do in England. And we also uh, have the role of regulating vocational qualifications, but not general qualifications, in Northern Ireland. Um, So all the sorts of uh, things like maintaining standards and improving confidence and all those straightforward things are are what we're about. Uh, And as it says at the bottom, we uh, recognise... recognise bodies that award qualifications and assessments, such as some of the ones you work for. Uh, We accredit qualifications and we monitor their activities, including their fees, it says. Um, We don't uh, don't look at degrees, but but really, uh, beyond that, there's an awful lot of qualifications that potentially are ones that um, we can regulate. Um, Now, I look back at uh, what I wrote last year as to what uh, today was going to be about... Um, and it said, uh, what has the regulator found in its regulatory work on the significant developments that 2010 has brought? Um, and I think when I wrote that, I thought there'd probably be something about uh, A-levels that would be interesting uh, this year, but I wasn't um, entirely sure what it was we were going to talk about. Um, so uh, there are some things that were interesting this year, which I'm not going to talk about because I can't do everything. So I'm not going to talk about diplomas. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the uh, sample test that was used on uh, 11-year-olds uh, in science this year. Uh, I'm not going to talk about single-level tests that uh, have had a veil drawn over them. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about actually a bit of work that, um, that we're doing more and more of, which, which involves uh, vocational qualifications and uh, occupational qualifications in particular. So it's not that they're not interesting and it's not that we don't do them, but there's a limit to what you can do in one seminar. So uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, carrying forward A-level standards. Uh, And as Paul said, the the idea is I'll uh, show you a few slides, say a few words, and then see what people have to say. And then we'll move on to uh, something to do with the new A-star grade. And then another pause and a little bit of debate. Uh, And... Then I thought perhaps we could talk about um, the new GCSEs that uh, are coming in. 
And then, uh, if there's time, if you've not said enough, really, uh, then we'll have to talk about equivalences. Um, so it is, it is supposed to be uh, a seminar. I, I, I do want to give you the opportunity to, um, to, to contribute. So, um, let's start off with uh, the first of these. Um, and I thought I ought to start by, by uh, thinking about the question, how are decisions made when A-level grade boundaries are set? Uh, and despite um, my long history that Paul uh, recanted, uh, actually all of this stuff goes uh, even further back than, than that, of course. Um, and um, uh, A-level's been around for uh, 50, nearly 60 years now, isn't it? Um, a, a very long time. Um, and um, how were decisions made about A-level boundaries in the early days? Well, this isn't the very earliest days, but... Um, Here's a description that was written in 1969 of what they were up to in the JMB at the time. Um, and you can see it says, uh, uh, when the chief examiners are satisfied, marking to a common standard has been achieved. The final meeting of examiners is held. Uh, in conjunction with the secretary and his staff, the examiners provide the necessary link. Uh, they work... Uh, working over a range of subjects, they proceed to consider what should be the minimum mark for a pass in the subject at advanced level... In addition to their own views on the standard of work as seen in the scripts, which they themselves have marked, the chief examiners receive detailed reports from each member of the panel. They're also provided by the secretary with statistical information about the way in which the marks in the subject as a whole run in the year under review as compared with previous years. If the distribution of marks is significantly different from that of previous years, they must attempt to establish on the evidence available to them whether there's been an improvement or deterioration in the quality of the entry or whether the question paper, despite all the efforts made at the preparatory stage, has proved to be easier or more demanding than the corresponding paper set in the previous year. And um, I don't know about you, but that all sounds sort of horribly familiar somehow, that um, although this was written uh, 40 years ago... Um, Actually, you know, broadly speaking, that, that isn't a million miles away from, from what people do now. Um, and, of course, this all um, described the position in the days of the, um, the SSEC guidelines. Back in 1963, there were guidelines set whereby the proportions of uh, each grade in an A-level was supposed to be pretty much fixed. So the 70% pass rate was pretty much fixed, 10%, the top 10% were supposed to get a grade A, and so on. Uh, so despite the fact it was, you know, in that sense, a different sort of system, we, we don't seem to have um, changed hugely. So um, we might ask the question, um, how good are rewarders at making judgments of, of quality? Because this system seems to rely on, on that. Uh, how good are they aligning this year's scripts with last year's? And uh, many of you will have some notion of the answer to that. Um, and uh, one of the uh, bits of evidence that's sometimes uh, brought to bear when, when people talk about this is this particular example um, about um, an AEB A-level English spec from 1990 and 1991. Uh, and it came to attention because quite uh, s several schools went to... Um, it was the predecessor of the Exams Appeals Board, the... Uh, independent IA, I've forgotten its name, IAASE, Independent Appeals Authority for School Examinations. That was it. Um, and uh, the, the schools went and complained that the, uh, you know, the, the results uh, really weren't good enough. And when you look at the figures for 1990 and 1991, uh, really there was quite a change, wasn't there? The grade A's changed from 5.7% down to 0.7%. Uh, 
and Bs went from 15% down to 5%, and meanwhile the passes went from 60% to 72%. Um, OK, the number of candidates entered changed a bit, but it was, it was still quite a, a marked change. Um, and when this went to the uh, appeals board, the board said uh, that AEB had not given proper weight to the statistical evidence. Uh, so it went back to AEB, who I think reconvened the uh, awarding meeting, uh, made some very small changes, and the outcomes, well, didn't look very different from... Um, from this, actually. Um, but it, what it did do, particularly within AEB, uh, was to um, strengthen the view that statistics were very important during awarding meetings. And this was, uh, interestingly, all around the time um, when, uh, in, in 1992, um, HMI uh, produced a report on the new, as it was then, GCSE exams, uh, saying that they weren't very confident that standards were being maintained. Um, and the Secretary of State of the time, John Patton, uh, decided that um, the, uh, um, uh, the scar of, of the day needed to do something about it. And in doing something about it, uh, they decided they ought to write a code of practice. Um, and um, the code of practice that was written, this was a GCSE-only one at the time, um, and uh, the way it was written was to collect from the different awarding bodies, or exam boards as we called them, uh, their procedures and make some sort of judgment about what ought to be in the code on, on this basis. And it was certainly the case that the, uh, what was then called the Southern Examining Group, which included the AEB um, and, and the Oxford Board, I should say, in this company, um, uh, it, it was certainly the case that those procedures were really quite um, influential. So we ended up with um, something like, uh, well, the code's obviously a lot bigger than this, but the paragraph at the top here uh, was um, close to uh, one of the earliest descriptions of how everyone should be doing this. And you can see it says, awarders must then, after looking at stuff, use their collective judgment to decide a single mark which normally lies within this range, which best represents the grade boundary in the light of the available statistical evidence. This judgment will include consideration of the previous year's statistical outcomes, the component of the boundary in question, and information about changes in entry patterns, estimated grades, and other technical data. And it, it was pressing the point that statistical information in, was pretty important. So that was uh, what happened all the way through the 90s, um, and um, um, that the uh, GCSE and A-level codes... Um, I think there was a separate A-level code for about one or two years, and then they merged. And then we got to this century, and we got to um, uh, 2002, which um, uh, was a bit of a, a troublesome summer, as you'll recall. Oh, the summer was fine, but by about September, October, <laughs> things weren't quite so good. Um, and um, one characterisation of the complaints of that time was that what was happening was that the uh, expert examiners whose collective judgment these awards were being based on, uh, were being overruled by the, you know, bureaucratic chief executives. And uh, the reaction to that was, was to make a, a bit of a change to the code. And, and I think the key is in this bottom quote here. Uh, so it still says each boundary must be set using professional judgment. But then it says the judgment must reflect the quality of candidates' work informed by the relevant technical and statistical evidence. And I think what was happening at that point was there was a slight move away from um, saying, as I think the previous paragraph was saying, uh, perhaps the statistical evidence is 
the more important. It doesn't say that, but you might read that into it. Towards saying fairly specifically, uh, the quality of the work comes first, and that's informed by the, the relevant evidence. So um, that's a, a bit of a history of, of how all these, these rules have come about. Um, and then, and, and uh, 2002, of course, is important in this uh, respect, um, what about what happens when you have new specifications? And um, uh, probably most people would think that um, as a specification is taught over the years, teachers become more familiar with it, uh, they get to know what sort of questions are going to be asked, there's probably more resources that are available to them and their students, there's more past papers for students to practice on. Those sorts of things happen. So, so over the years, uh, teachers and their students ought to become more familiar. And then you get to this point where something new comes in. And you might reasonably expect at that point the teachers feel just slightly less prepared because the syllabus has changed. Therefore, the students are probably less prepared. Um, so it's, it's a, a critical point. So what happens then? Do the, do the results go down? Um, because uh, presumably if the students are less well prepared, the quality of their work isn't quite so good. And that is a pretty critical question. And back in... Um, uh, the early part of the century. Um, uh, we, we talked about, and, and this was an idea from Mike Cresswell, uh, what became commonly referred to as the ethical imperative. And this was, was all about how there were two different approaches to how you might make decisions at awards. Um, and it says the compar comparable outcomes perspective implies that grade boundaries should be fixed so as to take account of any deficits in AS examination performance which are unique to the first group of cohorts. This was written specifically about 2001 AS. Um, so comparable outcomes is taking account of the fact that it's new. And then there's another perspective, which he called the comparable performance perspective, which entails an acceptance that candidates' results in summer 2001 should suffer because they were in the first cohort for the new exams. So uh, there, there were these two possibilities. And it's, it's important, I think, not to exaggerate the differences beto between the two in the sense of people sitting in an awarding meeting trying to make decisions. But certainly back in 2001, um, if, you, if you applied each perspective separately, if that's possible, to some of those awards back in 2001, you would have come out with, with different marks. The, the two grade boundaries wouldn't have coincided. And uh, perhaps the most famous example from, from 2001 was uh, an AQA statistics paper uh, where the modal mark was zero and the E boundary was set very low. I think it was 13% it was set at. And even setting it at 13% didn't meet the comparable outcomes perspective. Uh, to, to meet that, they would have had to go down to something like 8%. It didn't work very well, that paper. But the awarders at the time thought, we can't go down that far... Uh, there's something about the credibility of our awards. How can you give people an A-level pass at that sort of mark with that sort of evidence? Um, so uh, e even though there was um, a, a tendency to, to say that's, that's the approach we're taking, in practice, uh, sometimes that becomes quite hard. So let's get us uh, up to date. Uh, what did we do in 2010? Uh, in 2010, we prioritised comparable outcomes. 
uh, well, that's what we said we were going to do. And why did we do that? Well, the, the two perspectives, in a sense, link to two different purposes. Um, one links, to some extent, with the use of exam results to qualify students. Um, and the other one, I think, links more to the use of exam results to monitor schools and colleges and the exam system in general. Um, and to some extent, you have to make a decision and, and decide which way you're going to go. And uh, the decision, decision was, that was made about 2010 was that we thought what we had to do beyond everything else was to be fair to the candidates of 2010. Now, fair is a, a word that gets banded around an awful lot. By fair, what we meant was there are going to be students this year uh, coming out with their A-level grades, competing for university courses with people who got... A-level grades in 2009, competing for employment places uh, with people who got their A-levels in 2009. We ought to try to make sure that as far as possible, when you get that sort of competition, that it's, it's fair, it's on some sort of equal footing. So this was the approach that, that was taken this summer. Right, um, let me cut down on the number of words and show you a few uh, numbers or lines and then I'll give you a chance to speak. Um, if, if we look back over the years, at, um, A-level history is a sort of fairly typical subject. It's got a fairly large entry. Um, it's the, the results actually look pretty much like the overall A-level uh, results. Um, what, what has happened over the last 20 years? Well, if you look back in 1989, actually it's pretty close to 10%, which is... Um, the figure that the SSEC guidelines in 1963 said it should have been. So I've not actually looked this up, but probably the percent getting a grade A in history between 1963 and 1989 probably didn't change by more than a percent or two. Um, but from 1989, you can see through the 90s, it rose somewhat. And then if you look at um, here, uh, where's it gone? At this point here, this is 2001, and then from there it seems to rise quite sharply into 2002. Um, that, of course, was the introduction of the, the new specification. And then it rose quite sharply from 2002 to 2003, which is interesting. And then it sort of bobbled along, uh, sort of... Right, it, there's a slight rise there, but perhaps not as sharp as, as in the 90s. Um, so what's happened, what's happened since? If, if we put this system in place that said uh, we're going to prioritise uh, the, the notion that we're going to try and keep... We're, we're going to be fa as fair as possible to the students from 2009 and 2010, uh, despite the fact that 2010 students were faced with new specifications, which uh, may have been um, more difficult for their teachers to prepare them for... If we look at this is, this is all A-levels added together, uh, we can see that um, uh, for AS, we, and the change there we ought to look at really is 2008-2009, uh, grade A went up a, a bit, um, um, and then between 2009-2010 it hardly changed at all. And at A-level, between 2009-2010, um, when that was the change, uh, it went up by 0.3, so not much there at all. And at grade E, and you might argue at grade E the numbers are so high that you haven't got much room for manoeuvre, um, but um, not much change there either. 88.2, um, 88.1, uh, 88.2 um, uh, at grade E. Um, and the, the A, A results from 2009, 2010 only went up by 0.1. So, 
all looks, um, well, good if what you're looking for is not much change. Um, but it does rather depend on your perspective. And, um, uh, Tom, you need to look at this one because this is a slide I uh, pinched from you from last week. Uh, we, we had a, a reliability seminar last week and uh, Cambridge Assessment have been doing some, uh, some work for us that we commissioned on, on reliability. And uh, um, one of the things that, um, that's been done is that to try to answer the question, uh, how reliable are awarding decisions? And what I don't think anyone's done, or I think it's, maybe it's been done once somewhere, but not, not on the work we've commissioned, is to have two parallel awarding meetings and present them with the same data and see if they come up with the same results. That wasn't what we did. But what uh, Tom and his colleagues did was a, a simulation where they looked at, suppose for each unit... The, um, the boundary was moved up by a mark or down by a mark. And I think what you were saying, Tom, was that if you, if for a six-unit A-level, if you moved all the marks up by one and compared that with where you got to when you moved them all down by one, there was a difference of about 3% in the outcomes. And I think your implication was that, given how good awarders are at making judgments, you might expect that sort of variation. And yet, when you look at some of these figures... Um, over these years, um, they, they do look very close. There doesn't seem to be a lot happening. If you look at that, uh, the first one, that AS, uh, it's hardly changed at all in those four years. Uh, the A-level the in the middle has gone up a little bit. Uh, the GCSE at the bottom, not, not very much at all. So it all begs a bit of a question about uh, was too much use made of statistical information at the awards? Um, so... I think um, the questions that uh, we might want to think about are, going back to 2010, if we were using the ethical imperative and saying that's the fairest way to treat candidates, if we were using it this year, shouldn't we be using it next year? Because, OK, it's not a new specification, but we're going to have students from 2010, 2011 competing for jobs, university places... So, so is, it, is it just something we just use when there's new specifications come in and otherwise we leave the awarding bodies to do as they wish? So, uh, should we use it in uh, next year and beyond? And then there's, a, there's another question um, that um, is perhaps worth thinking about, which is if you do set standards in this way on the basis of comparable outcomes, so it's not on the basis of performance quite... And then you carry out comparability exercises, cross-moderation exercises using the quality of students' work at different grades. C can you still do that? Does that still give you some sort of sensible outcome if what you're trying to do is compare grade standards in a subject between boards or over time? OK. Um, right, we're still in A-levels, but now we're talking about the, uh, the new A-star grade. Uh, and you'll be pleased to hear I've got nothing like as many slides. Uh, in fact, I've got through half my slides in the first section. Um, where, do, where did the A-star grade come from? I uh, thought myself uh, thinking about as I was um, trying to put this together. Um, and if you can think back to the beginning of the century, there were a few universities, not very many, um, that were complaining that they uh, couldn't now distinguish between the very top students. And I suppose if you think back to that... Uh, 
graph of the history results, uh, there were more students uh, getting a grade A for whatever reason. There were more students getting three grade A's. Um, and so if you're trying to select from, from, those, from that very uh, small pool, uh, you as a university might have been finding it a bit more difficult. Um, in 2005, beginning of 2005, there was an education skills white paper uh, which had uh, many um, interesting, should I describe them, ideas in it. Uh, and uh, one of the most interesting was the idea of optional extension sections in all A-level papers covering AEA material. I um, don't know if you remember that, but um, it took quite a long time to persuade uh, the department of the time that wasn't a terribly good idea. Um, and somehow... Um, and I need to go back and read the history of this one day, uh, that morphed, I think, into A-star because the, the idea in the white paper was all about stretch and challenge and these um, optional difficult questions in papers would allow you to award a sort of A with merit or A with distinction because you'd be marking these papers and reporting them separately, these questions, sorry, um, but we, we moved from that to the notion of uh, let's have another grade. And by early 2007, we agreed uh, what was the rule for this grade. Um, it was that you had to get a grade A overall and at least 90% uniform marks on the A2 units. And it was going to come in at the same time as the new A-levels, uh, the, the ones with the stretch and challenge in them. So it wasn't a judgmental grade. It was, it was, uh, there was a rule, and that's the, uh, that's the way it was going to come out. Um, and uh, some of us spent uh, many hours, days, uh, t talking to technical people from the auditing bodies about exactly how was this going to work. There was an awful lot of useful uh, modelling of data that was done, and all of that, of course, was very difficult because what you're doing is you're drawing on old-style six-unit A-levels and saying... Uh, it's not quite going to look like this in the new style stretch and challenge for unit A-levels, but this is the best we can do. And I remember we had uh, long discussions about, um, on the basis of the data that came out of the modelling, uh, um, is that all going to be very credible? Um, some of us were worried about the differences between subjects that seemed to be emerging. Um, there were other ideas that were floating about, like wouldn't it be a lot easier if you simply took the top 25% of grade A students in each specification and said they're the ones to get a grade A star. Um, and there were arguments about, well, that might be fine in history, but in classical Greek, where they're all very clever, surely you'd expect even more to get an A star. And then there were derogatory comments made about other subjects that I dare not name um, about, you know, surely none of them deserve an ace. So anyway, we, um, we ended up uh, sort of back where we started, except... Um, uh, so so what, what, we did, what we were doing was saying uh, the priority was within a subject to make sure that the awards across the awarding bodies were fair... I use that word again, um, and put to one side the mysteries of um, uh, different standards between subjects. So what was done was, um, uh, well, something that wasn't very different from what the A-level uh, boards have been doing for the last few years. Uh, they uh, can generate matrices which show for each subject what your A-level grades look like compared to GCSE prior attainment to give you some sort of clue of, uh, on the basis of the particular entry you've got, what sort of set of grades you might expect. And in a sense, that was extended to include this new A-star grade. 
But of course, the A-star grade wasn't judgmental. The judgmental grades were A and E. And so that led to the question, well, so we've got this matrix, we've got these predictions. What happens if your outcome, when you draw this line at 90%, what happens if your outcome isn't close to your prediction? And that led us, uh, through many more meetings, uh, <laughs> arguing about words, to something... Uh, this, this is the, um, the uh, plain English uh, public-friendly version of the rule, believe it or not, um, which says that uh, you've, you've got this um, uh, statistical indicator value, as we politely call it, um, and if you're more than 2% away from that, then you ought to think of doing something about it. And the doing something about it involves uh, moving the... Um, what we call the A-star conversion point, in a sense, the unit grade boundary. Um, so you're, what you're doing is changing the point at which you convert your raw mark into uniform mark at that point. You make an adjustment there. But you only do that, as it says in the very last sentence, if you can be confident that you haven't uh, upset the grade A qualification level standard. So... Um, uh, uh, a rule that um, uh, took a lot of um, uh, production. Um, that was what was applied in the summer. Um, there were some specifications where people didn't make the adjustment or they didn't make the full adjustment because they weren't confident that would maintain A-level standards. There were other specifications where they did. Of course, the great majority of specifications, uh, well, I think about, of course, uh, we were pleased to see that in the great majority of awards, actually, uh, the figure that came out was within 2% of the um, statistical indicator. So what sort of results did we get? Um, OK, I've got four subjects that I chose, and um, I've got the results there, and I haven't got all the clever prediction matrices there, and that's because, you know, nobody else ever sees these prediction matrices. What uh, the general public and students and teachers might see if they burrow through enough uh, sets of data are these sorts of things. And so I think that the question really in terms of public confidence is probably if these are the sorts of results we get, uh, do they look sensible, credible, uh, whatever? Um, and each table is arranged uh, so that the right-hand column, which is the grade A's, is in ascending order. Um, so this is physics, as you can see. Um, and um, so the A's go from 29.7% uh, OCR spec A down to 39, or up to 39.7% for CCA. And you can see the A star, well, it doesn't sort of rise level in, in a sort of um, uh, linear fashion by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but actually the figures aren't all that different, I suppose you might say. But, well, that's physics. Um, maybe there's a question there about AQAA uh, and WJC, maybe. Who knows? Um, but that's, that's what the results look like. This is history. Um, so the A's go from 20.9 to 38.2. And the A stars... Here's French. Um, now, the CCA A-star figure seems to sort of stand out a bit starkly there, but it's only got 609 candidates, so does that ex help explain it? Or 
or not. I, I guess one of the questions would be, if you're running a school uh, with um, candidates you're trying to get A stars, would you look at some of these tables and say, I think I'm going to swap to so-and-so because they seem to be giving away the A stars a bit easily? Um, that, that, in a sense, would be the thing that, that would worry us. Um, Right, final one, economics. Um, uh, A's go from 35.7 to 45.2. A stars from 9.5 to 13.4. Two in the middle, small, comparatively small entry. Anyway, the, by, by applying the rule and, the, and, the, and what people did at awards and after, those are the sorts of figures we got. If you stick them all on um, a pot... Uh, you get that. Um, and you can see that um, they are mostly in a uh, sort of line. Um, there, there's a few sort of scattered on the right-hand side, but you could, many of you could guess what those um, outliers might be. Um, they're things like, I didn't quite know what this was, um, MEI Further Maths Additional is, um, is this one here. Um, but then it's only got 43 candidates, so... Um, and um, that's Russian, and this is another further maths, and this is modern Hebrew, and this is Persian, and these two are further maths. So languages without large entries and further maths, if you, if you took those out of the picture, actually everything else is sort of here. So maybe that's OK. I don't know. So um, there's a question about do, do whatever it means, do those results look right? Do they give us some confidence? Um, one of my colleagues was doing a talk yesterday at um, Schmiss, the sec... It's, it's um, I don't, can't remember what it's, it stands for, but it's, it's, the ind- it's not the big posh independent schools. It's a lot of the other independent schools, uh, some of whom have quite a lot of uh, special needs students and, and the likes, but uh, a, f- a fair old mix. And uh, there were s- about 60 of them there, and they were asked um, whether they thought the right students got A-star grades this summer, and most of them put their hand up to say yes... And then they were asked, were there students, were there students who got an A-star grade who shouldn't have? And nobody put their hand up. Um, that's a sort of measure of confidence, I suppose. Um, there's a bit of a question going forward, because this year was a bit tricky. This was setting a grade for the first time. Um, You know, it's not a great idea to introduce a new grade to a scale, I suspect, Uh, but we did it and we've got there. And now, you might argue, if you're looking after a particular specification, you've set a standard. Um, So there is a bit of a question about um, uh, what do we do from this point on? Do we simply repeat the process we had this year? Because (laughs) now there are other opportunities. You you could say, well, we we know where it should be, Let's carry it forward in some way. Or more radically, um, we made a uh, brave, possibly, decision when we were setting up the, uh, the, the project, the extended project and principal learning, um, to say the judgmental boundaries should be uh, A star and whatever the bottom grade is. 
So the, the level three extended project, you don't set the, um, which uses the same as the A-level scale, you don't set the boundaries at A and E, you set the boundaries at A star and E. And that gets rid of all that nasty extrapolation at the top. Uh, and potentially now we've set an A star standard, couldn't we um, base A-level standards in the future on saying we'll set A star and E, not A and E? OK, um, having solved the problems of A-levels, let's move on to GCSE. Um, uh, we, um, uh, there's um, uh, Professor Alison Wolfe, uh, be well known to some of you, is, is doing a review of um, 14 to 19 vocational education at the moment for the government um, and came to see us this week. And um, uh, at some point we were talking about GCSEs um, and she was somewhat taken aback uh, when I pointed out to her that her presumption that there'd been a national policy to convert all GCSEs to um, unitised forms uh, was not the way it happened at all. Um, and I think probably most people in the outside world, if you asked them and they thought about it, would probably have the same view that, that Alison did. Um, there has been something quite extraordinary that's happened in a sense, in that we've had this major change to GCSEs. I, I know there's been uh, some OCR GCSEs that were unitised previously, but you know, overall there were hardly any. And we've swapped. And, and the reason we've done that is not some uh, directive from government or the regulator. Uh, the awarding bodies decided, given the flexibility in the rules, that that's what they do. Um, uh, quite, quite interesting, really. Um, that's left us with uh, uh, one um, challenge, um, which is uh, we've got these new GCSEs. Uh, we presumably want to do something called carrying forward standards in some way. Um, mostly, apart from a few OCR ones, uh, people are, are therefore going to have to uh, go from the standard they set previously in their linear specifications to setting the same, whatever that means, standard in unitised ones. So um, how's all that going to work? Uh, well, there won't be a problem because I've written to all the accountable officers and this is what I've said. Um, in order to... Um, Right, there's a bit at the beginning, and then it says, in order to understand the implications of these principles for awarding, it's important to consider the structure of the new GCSEs. There's no prescribed order in taking the units, notwithstanding the requirements in any given specification to meet the terminal rule. This means the standard of performance to be expected for a given grade on any unit in any series should be what could reasonably be expected of a candidate at the end of a two-year course of study. The factors in the change from linear to unitised assessment that should be considered when setting standards, and I think when we say factors that should be considered mean um, if, if what previously would have been a grade A turns into a grade B for one of these factors, then you shouldn't allow that to happen. Uh, because the, the factors that I then give are the removal of indicator 2, the conversion of raw to uniform marks and any change to the number of components. We're saying somehow we should rule these out. So if you understand indicator two, you'll realise that in a sense, uh, no, not in a sense, the, the, the grade boundary for a unitised scheme where you're using indicator one at grade A will be higher, uh, which if you do nothing else about it, will mean if you just go with the judgments the uh, awarders make, you'll have fewer candidates, a lower proportion of candidates getting a grade A 
and we're saying that doesn't, that doesn't feel right because why should these candidates be discriminated against just because they're forced to take a unitised GCSE? Um, and then we go on to say... Um, Awarding organisations will be expected to provide as wide a range of qualitative and statistical evidence as possible. The regulators will expect awarding organisations to monitor the awards in every series to produce outcomes that are fair and consistent with the standards of 2010. A key tool the regulators will use to evaluate the outcomes with performance of candidates from common centres. Now, we spent the first uh, best part of an hour talking about A-levels and carrying forward standards and how we did that. And now we're talking about the same concept, I think, in GCSEs. In some respects, this is a bigger change uh, because changing from six units to four units with a bit of stretch and challenge thrown in doesn't sound quite as dramatic as changing from linear specifications to um, unitised ones. Um, but in you know, one year after we've just uh, set some principles and said this is how we're doing it for A-level, we're now doing this for GCSE. Um, and we're not saying quite the same things. And so I think the question is, um, is are we still using the same um, uh, principle here? It, it seemed clear, I think, from what I was saying, that we took the ethical imperative pretty seriously with A-level. Um, uh, you, you've not got the words on the screen, but you've got them in front of you. Is that, is that still what we're doing? Are we still using the ethical imperative here? We, we talk in the in the, uh, the first of those slides about um, the idea that standards of performance uh, expected on a given grade should be what could reasonably be expected of a candidate at the end of a two-year course of study. We're talking about the performance standard there. So, uh, and, so and some of you, doubtless, will be engaged with uh, this uh, and will already have had awards, perhaps, of, um, from students in Year 10. Right, um, let me just... Uh, uh, talk about equivalences very quickly because we've got 10 minutes left um, um, and, and this is very much about um, equivalences in, in terms of sort of 16 year old stuff so we're not talking here about the UCAS tariff and, and all of those sorts of things um, and I think, I think uh, much of this started uh, with uh, the introduction of the G GMVQ and the uh, pronouncement um, of how many GCSEs the GMVQ was uh, equivalent to, which sometimes was said to be four and sometimes five. And uh, in, in terms of schools and performance tables and things, that led to a, something of a growth of um, the GMVQ IC, in ICT taken by schools who fancied this as a way of getting um, the equivalent of four GCSE grade Cs. Um, now, more recently, because that was, that was some years ago, um, there's, in, in ICT, there's been some quite big changes in um, entries. Uh, uh, the OCR National in ICT has gone from 5,000 entries uh, four years ago to 77,000 uh, last year. Um, quite a big growth. And meanwhile, the GCSE has uh, slumped from 99,000 down to 38,000 this year. Um, and we're, we're about to publish a report which tries to look at, um, at some of these. So I don't want to talk about um, ICT, um, but what about science? I've uh, got to mention earlier, uh, uh, this is a slide that um, I've uh, borrowed from Tim, grateful for that. Um, here, here's some figures for entries for science qualifications 
2002 through to 2008. Um, you can see um, there's a few changes. There were some things coming in in, in 2008 in particular. What's happened since then? Um, 2008 was the first um, major awards of the new GCSE science specifications, the ones Ofqual keeps criticising. Um, you can see uh, in just two years there's been some pretty major changes in the entries. Um, there's almost 100,000 fewer students doing GCSE science this year than two years ago. Um, and 70,000 fewer doing additional science. And some of those, quite a lot of those actually, have gone off to do biology, chemistry and physics, 40-something thousand more. And you can argue that's because there's been a government initiative to boost the numbers doing the three separate sciences. Um, but meanwhile, there's, there's been some interesting changes elsewhere. Um, there's the OCR um, award certificate, which has grown from um, 5,000 to 15,000, 16,000 in a couple of years. Uh, more significantly, perhaps, uh, the BTEC first certificate um, has gone from 19,000 entries in 2008 to 95,000 in 2010. 75,000 more 16-year-olds doing one of these BTECs in that time. Um, and, uh, and the diploma as well. So there will have been getting on for 100,000 um, 16-year-olds this summer who came out not with GCSEs in science, but with BTEC qualifications. Um, that's quite an interesting uh, change in, in what's been going on. Um, and um, the Secretary of State seems to have noticed um, some of these things, because here's a, a speech he gave um, last month. Um, he says, uh, a superficial look at the statistics would suggest a renaissance in vocational learning over the last few years, unprecedented in human history. Um, in 2004, 22,500 vocational qualifications were taken in schools. By 2009, this had risen to 540,000, mostly age 16, a 2,300% increase. But looking behind these figures, we discover that many of these qualifications are not quite the hard, practical immersion in the craft and technical skills or the skillfully designed preparation for the modern world of work some of us might have imagined. And looking at the timescale over which this massive surge has occurred, it's striking that it all follows the decision of the last government to fix the value of some of these qualifications so they're counted in league tables. Since I've been Education Secretary, I've been struck by the concern among many employers, many higher education institutions, many parents, many head teachers, that the rapid growth in the take-up of some of these qualifications is indeed less a reflection of their inherent worth than a function of the value they've been given for league table purposes. And you'll all have heard anecdotal stuff like that previously. Um, and going back to science, one of the things that's on our agenda for next year is having a look at... Uh, uh, key stage four science qualifications, by which I mean some GCSEs, um, BTEC, OCR National, and trying to say uh, what can we say about the equivalences of those. I think I'll stop, really. It's five o'clock. Thanks very much, Dennis. I, I said to Dennis before I came over here uh, that my head was hurting because I had a headache and I took some ibuprofen and it's sorted, but now my head hurts in a very different way. <laughs> but on that note of confusion, let's say a big thank you to Dennis. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.